Thank you. And we have Cheryl next, if you'd like to go ahead and read. Hi, Cheryl. Are you still here? There you I are. I am still here. <laughs> Hello, Donna. Hello. <laughs> go ahead, darling. Okay. Well, I set an intent um, several months ago to work work through what I've heard you call a core fear. Of course, I had the Rudolph experience in the immersive. And um, so Rudolph needs to get rid of this thing because I've got a sleigh to guide. I, I've hit it a couple of times. And the first couple of times, I just felt like the cowardly lion. Put up your dukes. It was just so big. So I've come at it several different ways. I got a whole box of courage badge and dump it, dumped it on it. Then I had I had my bracelets on on all arms and my legs, and I was just coming at it every direction I could think of. And you know, because I've got the intent set, it, of course, it keeps showing up in my experience. <laughs> and so I, I keep bumping into it, and I've gotten really acquainted with this uh, all the way I think to the being level of <laughs> how this thing feels, and it is definitely something I need to get rid of. <laughs> so I hate to keep bringing this up, but it's just the same one. Is is there any way to come at these big ones? Is there any more tools that we that I can dig out of a toolbox somewhere? Um, I don't know what I'm trying to really ask. Uh, is there other ways to come at these fears besides just waiting for them to manifest? And then deal with it right then. I mean, I'm I'm letting it manifest. Well, I don't have a choice right now, really. But when it does manifest, um, right now, I have so much work to do on it. It's just so big. It's just a little overwhelming. And I'm just like the cowardly line. Put up your dukes. You know, it's just kind of silly. So. Well, one of the things you can do, Cheryl, is um, you don't have to you don't have to get rid of it all at once. Realize that this is a a process that will take time. Uh, if you can just shrink it a little bit, that is a win. You know, that's a good thing to do. Just shrink it some. And if you can keep shrinking it over a year or two years or even five years, then eventually you're going to get it to go away. So it doesn't have to be an all or none kind of a deal. And one of the things you should have in your mind, uh, which it, it seems you do, is a very strong intent that I am going to get rid of this thing. Not just that I'm going to try to get rid of this thing. That kind of leaves in the possibility of failure, but that you are going to get rid of this thing. And when you feel it start to affect your choices and your feelings, don't push it under the rug, but just don't go there with it. Don't let take charge of your feelings again and say, nope, not going to get sad, not going to get angry, not going to get, you know, upset with this fear and clear your mind and just go on. In other words, don't let it assume control over your choices. So just by having a very strong intent that I will beat this thing, I will overcome it, I will make it shrink, and that intent will in fact actually make it happen because the future probability will start to change in your favor and it will start to weaken. 
just with a very strong positive resolve that you well get rid of it. Again, not that you're going to try, that you're going to. And with that, you'll notice that it will try to come back. Again, the fear always tries to push back. It'll start to come back and even be more scary. Well, that's a sign that you're actually making progress. Because if you weren't making progress, (laughs) yeah, if you weren't making progress, it wouldn't have to flare up like that. When it flares back at you and its fangs grow an extra couple of inches (laughs) and it gets even scarier than it was, that's because you are having success of getting rid of it. And it's trying to, to scare you to stop. It's trying to make oh. you, it's trying to make your resolve weaken. You're not resolved in me. Oh, this thing's too big. I just can't do it. It's <laughs> trying to get you into that mode, you see. So expect that. When you try to push that thing away, if it rears back and, and just comes on twice as strong, that's because you're being successful. If you weren't being successful, it wouldn't need to do that. So then you just have to double up your resolve and push it back harder. And it'll come back at you as hard as it can. But after a short time of that, it'll start to shrink and go away. It will be beaten. And then you just keep pushing it down until it's gone. So, yes, expect a fight. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that thing that's then scaring you and making you kind of quit or breaking your resolve, that's because you're being effective. You are getting rid of it. And that's mm-hmm. its response to you being successful. So take that as a positive, just to bear down and stick with it and keep pushing. And yeah, it may be a tough week or two or three, or even a tough month or a, a tough month or two or three, but you will eventually tell it that you are the boss, you will get rid of it and it will go, and then it will start to leave. So just that resolve is a very important piece of it. That intent has to be um, you know, has to be sure has to be confident that you are going to get rid of it. So stick stick with that and you'll see that it'll that you eventually will win. And even though it flares up and tries to scare you into breaking your resolve, just push harder and it'll break and it will go away. As it turns out, these fears tend to be more smoke than substance. They tend to be more paper tigers than real tigers. <laughs> And it most like of what's growing, <laughs> yeah, it will. It'll feel like it's growing and whatever. It's yes. trying to break your resolve. So <laughs> just realize they're paper tigers and smoke. And if you're persistent and push on hard enough, they will crumble. But they will put up a fight first. So yes, it'll it'll tell you all kinds of things that are horrible. If you don't <laughs> stop that, you know, I'm going to grow twice the size, and then you'll be sorry. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, don't take that. So, yeah, well, then I'll be twice as hard pushing you away. It, it was getting bigger. So I was thinking, okay, maybe the, um, this fear is really deep. It's really conditioned inside of me. And I was trying to find all these things, trying to go forward with it. And so uh, that, but that makes perfect sense that it doesn't want to go away. And it's, it, it is growing and getting bigger, but it's because I'm getting somewhere. That is such right. good news. <laughs> good. Thank you so much. And the other thing I just wanted to tell you, thank you for being all of our mentor, not guru, mentor, and helping us with this. Since this is the intent and the the context of the theory to work through these fears. And thank you so much for helping us. Welcome.
Nicholas, please go ahead with your question. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, you're next, Nicholas. Would you like to read your question? Uh, first of all, congrats with uh, reaching the first milestone on Kickstarter. Uh, I have a question regarding to that because uh, it's a two-part question. But first, I wonder why now? Why not three, four, five years ago? And the second question is, uh, do you see the most probable future? Or do you have some thoughts about how the masses will react when these experiments are launched or maybe go viral and uh, people will know about them? Okay, well, the first one, why not three, four years ago? It was only 2016 that I uh, came up with the experiments and uh, I was in October and that's the, you go to YouTube to the MBT LA 2016 and that was the first presentation. So that's when the experiments came together and I was working on them for probably six months before that. And if you go to my talk in Atlanta, you'll hear some of the initial uh, some of the initial work. Matter of fact, you'll see some of the initial slides that are in the uh, that are in the LA uh, version that uh, I had together in Atlanta, which was I think early, like uh, January or February, something like that. And I got them all together and then briefed them for the first time in in uh, LA in October. So they were a time coming. They haven't been around that long. And uh, I guess it just took me a while to get around to doing them because doing physics experiments wasn't really on my path. But I realized that if you want to get the physicist involved, you're going to have to give them an experiment. And in general, what I'm trying to do with the experiments is just very, very hard thing to do in the sense that I'm trying to have a physical experiment say something about the non-physical. See, that's tough. Physical experiments will say all sorts of things about the physical world. That's what a physical experiment does. It tells you about facts in the physical world. Trying to get a physical experiment to say something about the non-physical. Well, you can't really get it to say anything directly about the non-physical, but I'm hoping I can get it to point a finger, you know, produce some evidence. So it's it uh, kind of wasn't on my initial path, but that is what it takes to get the scientific community in gear uh, to take the idea of virtual reality a little more seriously would be some experiments that that uh, produce evidence in that arena, that area. So that's why I tried to come up with these experiments. Now, nobody knows how they're going to work out. You know, that's, I'm, you know, I don't know how they're going to work out. The reason I wanted to do them is to find out. See, I have this idea that virtual reality is the way real our reality is and that consciousness is fundamental. And therefore, the physical world follows from consciousness. Therefore, the, the, the non-physical world should be able to give you the basis of the physical world. Well, I did a lot of that with my virtual reality theory. But I came to a point where I saw some things about science that suddenly made sense to me, like why the speed of light was a constant. Well, it's because it's a virtual reality and the constant comes from the from the resolution with which that virtual reality is rendered. That's uh, delta X over delta T is C and you can't move anything through the, through the uh, contiguously through pixels of space uh, any faster than one delta X for every delta T. Well, that gives every virtual reality a speed limit. 
So this is a virtual reality. What do we find here? A speed limit. Well, okay, that makes good sense. And then I saw that the reality was was derived, was the machine, the mechanics of creating the virtual reality, how the rendering engine worked to create this virtual reality was probabilistically. All right. Well, if it's a probabilistic model, then it makes pretty good sense that our reality, our physical stuff, our particles, our, our macro stuff is really probabilistically driven. Okay, well, if that's the case, then I began to believe that I understood quantum mechanics because the solution that the quantum mechanics have found is that they can get the right answer if they assume that the particles aren't particles, not little chunks of mass, but rather probability distributions. So that seemed to fit pretty well, too. The virtual reality that is based on probability would have particles that work like probability distributions. Okay, no big surprise there either. Well, so those ideas needed some more foundation built under them. And as I looked at quantum mechanics and a double slit, I saw some other things that would seem to make sense. So I wanted these experiments to check and see whether those were right. One of the things that, that I thought made good sense is that in a virtual reality, the reality itself exists only in the minds of the players. Okay, so if you're a, if you're playing World of Warcraft, that World of Warcraft game set, the rivers, the streams, the houses, the characters in World of Warcraft only exist in your mind. You see, and where your mind gets them is your mind looks at a screen that has say a million little dots of light on it, and you look at those million dots of light, and that's your data input, that's your data stream, and you interpret all those little dots of lights into rivers and mountains and streams and elves and barbarians and all that stuff you get just out of interpreting dots of light. But the actual reality itself is only in the minds of the players. There is no set of trees and rocks and rivers and mountains that exist someplace that elves and barbarians run around in. Doesn't really exist. It's computed, the data sent to players and players have that reality in their minds. Okay, the nature of a virtual reality. Well, if that's the case, then that seemed to me to explain the observer effect in the quantum mechanics realm, okay, in the double slit experiment. And the observer effect is that the observer seems to have a very important role in the double slit experiment. And I, my thought was, well, that's because if the data stream that defines, say, those particles, what slit they go through, if that data stream uh, create something in this reality, it has to be through the mind of a player. That's the only way this reality exists is in the minds of the players. That's how the data gets here. Okay, the players get the data, they create the reality in their minds. Okay, well, that's good explanation of why you'd have to have an observer effect because it has to be in the mind of a player. So I put those two together and came up with some ideas about quantum experiments to see how they'd work. Now, I don't know if it'll work like that. That's the neat thing about an experiment. You don't know until you do the experiment. So uh, I get a lot of pushback from um, the quantum mechanics community because in their theory, it doesn't work like that. Well, their theory does not start from a virtual reality beginning like mine does. So it makes sense to me from the virtual reality angle. It doesn't make sense to them. They give it other 
you know, they give the quantum mechanics other properties for other reasons. They've never really done that I could find the experiment that I want to do. So I'm going to do it. I want to do it just to see how it works. It may work. It may not work. I don't know. But the only way I know to find out is to do the experiment and see. And in either case, I will learn something. If it turns out my viewpoint of the fact that the reality is created only in the minds of the observers is somehow not right, that there's some other aspect of that reality that gets created outside the minds of the observers, well, then I'll learn that in that experiment. And that will help me come to a better theory, a better understanding. So that's kind of where I am and, and you know, how I got started on it and why I got started on it. And basically, I have these these uh, virtual reality derived ideas that I want to test and see how they work. Now, the reason that I don't just give up and say, well, okay, you quantum theorists know what you're doing, and I'm not a quantum theorist. See, that's not my line of work. I, I When I was in uh, graduate school, it was... Uh, it was a low energy nuclear experimental is what I did. And my, my academic sense of quantum mechanics goes back to 1970. It has a long time ago. Quantum mechanics has changed a lot since the 1970s. So I don't see myself as a, as a professional up to date quantum theorist. That's not who I am. But when I do have quantum uh, uh, scientists say, well, that's not the way it works. Well, I don't necessarily just say, oh, well, okay, you know more than I do. That's not the way it works because I want to test to see whether the virtuality viewpoint <clears throat> has merit or not. Or at least it has merit in the way that I, that I see it or not. There may be other ways to look at it that I'm not seeing that uh, I'll get from these experiments and be able to do it. So I just want to do the experiment to find out how it works. Um, you know, I've, I've read any number of things where, where quantum scientists, uh, one comes to mind, and I'll have to find it again, but this was a quantum physicist who had a, a Nobel Prize and was an older guy, and he was philosophizing about quantum mechanics, and he was saying about how there's just some really fundamental things in quantum mechanics that just aren't understood. We just don't know why it should be that way and so on, and his point was that we're going to figure it out one day, but when we do, it's not going to be anything at all that we imagined. It's going to be something kind of comes, you know, off from the side that is simple, straightforward, and nobody ever thought about it. You know, one of those things. And it'll, he said, and it'll probably come out of the mind of a graduate student or someone else, not out of the, the you know, the brilliance of the quantum theorists on the ground. And the reason he said that is those quantum theorists have been working on the problem for about 100 years and have dug themselves into beliefs about the way it works and can't really see it any other way. So he was saying some, some perspective that is totally foreign is going to come in and is going to solve this problem. And I don't know whether I have that perspective or not, but I want to give it a try. And just the fact that a lot of quantum theorists say that I'm wrong, well, they don't understand everything either, and who knows until the experiment's done. So I don't mind being wrong. Being wrong isn't something that worries me or frightens me. I don't mind being wrong at all. But I do mind not knowing. 
not having the answer, not knowing whether it works or not. So I'll gladly be wrong in order to find out, you know, whether these experiments work or don't work. So that's kind of where I am and, and how I got there. And, you know, that's true for, for all of the experiments I have. There's a quite a number of experiments. I think there's like 17 of them in all, but some are just leading up to others. But in any case, who knows? You know, they may all be right. They may all be wrong. But in any case, I'm going to learn a whole lot about it, and I'll be able to do better the next time. Otherwise, I'm stuck, you see, because the quantum theorists now are not going to do my experiments because in their mind, they aren't worth doing. Okay. But in their mind, they really don't understand how quantum mechanics works either. So I have to do them just for myself, just to see that they either work or don't. And then, and then from there, I will try to learn more. But to sit off on the side and say, well, gee, I know all these people disagree with me. I don't want to make a fool of myself. So I better just sit down and be quiet. I don't mind making a fool of myself. You know, I don't see it that way. I won't feel like a fool. I'll feel like somebody who had an idea and wouldn't rest until they saw whether it worked or not. So that's kind of where I'm coming from regarding uh, those experiments. And we'll see. I'm real excited to finally get some funding that I will be able to go try these experiments and learn something from them. Either way, work or not work, I'll feel like a winner in that I will have learned something important to me. And if everybody else wants to hoot and holler, I don't care. I will have learned something and that's that's fine. That's fine for me. I can move forward. It's gonna be it's gonna be exciting for sure. Whatever. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Nicholas. Did you have another question, Nicholas? Yeah, I have one. Uh, it is for for a friend of mine that lives in a time zone that makes it difficult to attend live. Uh, and he asks, uh, he have one questions uh, in terms of uh, your Monroe experience, and he th he thinks. I think it was strange that you didn't believe Monroe because you had so many OBE experience as a young person. And uh, he wondered why uh, you didn't believe him before uh, uh, testing. And uh, I couldn't answer him, so, so I just ask you right now. Okay, I'm not sure I understand that question. Uh, he was talking about Monroe. Monroe had a lot of experiences, or did you say your friend had a lot of experiences and your friend didn't believe Monroe or Monroe didn't believe himself? or I got a little oh. lost there in that translation. Yeah, it's a little hard to translate. Uh, he uh, read your book, Big Toe, and you explain mm -hmm. in depth how you had experience as a young person from yes. OBE and parallel. Yeah. And uh, when you started meeting Monroe, he think it was strange that you were so skeptical because uh, regarding your experience, you should believe him right away that he could do those things and yeah. Uh, why was I so skeptical Yeah, when I met Monroe? Yeah. Well, you know, at that point, I had, uh, I was then 20-something when I met Monroe, probably 25 or 6 or something like that, the time I, uh, I met Monroe. And I hadn't been doing any of that stuff for a long time. Most of that happened to me when I was 6 and 7 years old. And then it kind of got uh, pushed out of my my realm of uh, of experience 
although I still had, uh, you know, non-physical connections all along, but I just never really thought of them. I didn't say, wow, that's weird. I talk to non-physical things and get answers. And uh, I just figured that was just natural. Everybody did that. You know, I didn't see that as a particular unusual kind of thing. I'd always had connections to uh, non-physical entities. And I didn't really care whether they were imaginary or anything else. They worked. I got good information. So I used them and didn't care much about, you know, looking at it uh, from a from a, a critical viewpoint. It just was something that worked. I didn't have enough information to know why or how. I just know it did. So I used it and didn't pay much attention. So when I saw the book, uh, Bob and Rose, you know, I'm mostly, I'm about 90% uh, young brash physicist with a uh, definition of reality that says that if you can't measure it, it's not real. Although I've got this experience that I barely remember that was opposite to that. Plus, I just was able to do things with my mind after I learned how to meditate again um, and debugging computer code. So I knew there was something out there that was really strange about this world and that you could do things with your mind that you shouldn't be able to. But I didn't know whether Bob Monroe was just trying to sell books or whether he was, you know, honest with it. And at that point, I didn't remember any of my experiences from my childhood. And it wasn't until I was out at Bob's for probably, um, I don't know, at least six months or eight months, maybe even a year, before all that stuff started pouring back into my head about what all the experiences I had when I was younger. And it, the reason they poured back is because Bob came to me with an experience that he had had just the night before. He says, wow, I was really run through a series of tests last night and, and uh, questions. And he started to tell me about them. And as he did, I recognized them. And suddenly, that's when it all came back. So after that, you know, it was a different world. I remembered in detail all of my younger days um, doing out of body and that sort of thing. But up until that point, that wasn't with me anymore. It was buried someplace. But he said, yeah, I had this. And here was the first test. And he set up the conditions. And he said what he got for the answer. And then what happened next and the next one. And the whole series was identical to one that I had already done when I was like, you know, seven years old. And uh, then I told him the next couple of questions. I said, all right, wait a minute. Let me wait till I get my Mac together here just for a few minutes. And, and uh, then I told him what the, what the third question was after he told me the first two. And I told him what my answer was and what happened. And, you know, his jaw dropped and he wondered how I knew that because, you know, this had just happened to him. And then I told him the next one. And we did like that. We traded. And uh, obviously, we both had that same experience. And that's when my memories came back entirely about that time when I was uh, when I was young that I had all those experiences. So I was very skeptical of Bob Monroe. I, uh, I didn't know what he was all about, but it didn't take me long after meeting him to realize that it wasn't about making money. When you drove into Bob Monroe's house, there was obviously wealth all over the place. And, uh, you know, what little bit he made out of, out of that book, even if he made, a, you know, even if he sold a lot of them, I mean, out of body is not like a mainstream thing. You know, that's not going to that's not going to go up on anybody's uh, bestseller list. It's always going to be a small bunch of people who are interested in that. And uh, I knew that wasn't of interest to him. He didn't need to do that. He had all the cash he needed. Uh, in life. He didn't have to, uh, you know, lie about a book in order to get another little dribble of income in for spending money. 
So, and after you talk with Bob, you realize he was just serious. He was, he wanted to understand it. He wanted to be legitimate. He didn't want to be the crazy old guy that had funny experiences. He wanted to have put this experience on the map scientifically and logically. So it was a thing that was taken, you know, that was credible. So that was his, that was his motivation. And if you're just telling stories, you don't have that motivation. If you're just telling stories, you know, you don't really want to go into it. You kind of brush everybody off when they try to dig deeper. So Bob was authentic. He was the real deal. And uh, he was one of the best uh, uh, OBE researchers, I guess, at that, at that time. He was, because he was so straightforward. Matter of fact, he had a, he had a mind like an engineer, very logical, very precise. And he wanted to find out too. So I wanted to find out and he wanted to find out. So we both met and uh, got along really well. And that's why we started working together. But yeah, I was unsure of him in the beginning. Um, you know, you have to be skeptical about everything. And the, the, the person you have to be most skeptical about is yourself. That's uh, kind of the way it is. So, and I, I would, tell everybody to be skeptical about everything. You know, if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. If it's not your truth, then you're just either a believer or a disbeliever, and neither one of those will get you any place important. So does that answer your question? Or his question? Yeah, I think it was uh, fascinating. I got uh, three more questions just out of that, but I can like, tell the people. <laughs> We'll come back to you, Nicholas. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Uh, I think I think Bob would be very much in favor of your physics experiments, Tom. Um, only a non-scientist would say, well, we already know, and not conduct an experiment to find out further. Uh, Eric, your two questions are very interesting. All of the questions have been interesting today. Uh, please go ahead next, Eric. OK, thank you, Donna. Uh, can you hear me OK? do all right so um there's a pretty famous book written by richard dawkins uh, called the selfish gene and in this book he writes uh, we are survival machines robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes now i understand that this is not not the whole story according to mbt but there's certainly a truth to it, since through the process of biological evolution, the human avatar has developed many instincts that increase the chances of the survival of its genes. Uh, will the influence that these instincts have on our choices change as we evolve the quality of our consciousness? And how so? Well, yes, instincts are changeable. They're not, uh, you know, nothing in your... Uh in your uh, genes and in your DNA is unchangeable. Matter of fact, it's probably more changeable than we, you know, give it credit for. They will change as we change because our environment is changing. The instincts that we develop were developed because of the environment that we were in. You know, you have a certain environment and the way evolution works is that environment sets certain criteria that in order to succeed, that you have to meet those criteria. And in our biological evolution, that criteria was to survive and procreate. 
right? Those are the two, those are the two criteria that this environment uh, requires in order for us to go forward. Well, in that environment, uh, we've developed instincts that helped us survive and procreate. Well, as that environment changes, our instincts are going to change as well. Instincts are, uh, are relative to your environment. Now, the idea of survival has changed a lot. If you go back, uh, you know, humans as we know them have been running around on the planet for only about 200,000 years. Before that, it was maybe proto-human, but the modern humans are only about 200,000 years old. Well, that's a lot of time, and most of that time was in a very mean, very dangerous, very violent environment. So we evolved to be able to survive in that environment, and we have instincts that uh, that enable us to survive and to um, you know, pass our genetics on down to the next generation to procreate in that environment. One of the things that uh, we witness about that is notice how people are immediately drawn uh, to their, their attention is drawn to something that is, that is scary, that is negative, that is a problem. Now, that drives our attention. Look at the news. It's all about scary stuff. It's all about problems. It's all about violence. Somebody has a happy day does a really good job raising their kids and, you know, kisses their spouse, you know, when they get home, that's not news. Nobody really cares about that. And what's news is if he comes home and, you know, kicks the dog, you know, beats his spouse and, and then, uh, you know, does something else, uh, burns his neighbor's house down or something. Now that's really big news that everybody wants to know about. Well, is that because we're just defective that way and we love violence? No, that's because, our survival depends on us being aware of those things that might get us. So if there's something scary or something uh, um, dangerous, something um, that can get you, you want to know about it because then you can look out for it or be aware of it or have a defense for it. So when somebody uh, 200,000 years ago ate these pretty little uh, blueberries from the bush and had a nice time and lived happily ever after, Nobody cares. But if he ate those little blue berries and the next day was found dead, well, now that's news that everybody can use. Don't eat those little blue berries. They're poisonous, you see. So we have this sense of gravitating toward the negative, the scary, the stuff that might get us. Because if it got somebody else somewhere, then maybe it could get us too. So we're interested. So it's not just that we're all kind of demented and live on other people's misery, it's that the negative is attractive to us. It grabs our attention right away, part of our instincts. But as we live in a gentler, kinder, kinder uh, environment, a lot of those instincts are no longer useful anymore. A lot of those instincts don't play that well for us. And in the last, what, 300 years, our environment has changed dramatically dramatically. And that is going to create pressure for our instincts to change dramatically to meet that. Now, instincts won't change quickly. You wouldn't want to have a, a kind of a, a spring in the human evolution that everything got kind for, uh, you know, for a decade and then got ugly again. And then humans would be terribly unprepared because all of their 
survival, uh, the survive the ugliness genes have disappeared over that last uh, decade. So it's a slow process that has to take place. But yes, they're going to change, will change. And our attitudes toward things will also change. Remember, this reality is what we interpret it to be. We get data, but we interpret it to be this reality. And as this reality gets kinder and gentler, our interpretations will change because our experience will change. Our interpretations are based on our experience. We'll see things differently, and that will help. So, yes, um, we do encode stuff in hard coding, hard wiring in our DNA, but it's not that hard of wiring. It will change as we do. So we don't have to be a slave to our DNA, and that's something that uh, Bruce Lipton talks about uh, in epigenetics. There are many ways in which the mind modifies our DNA, our genetics. And we do this on a daily basis. It doesn't take a thousand years to change us. We change ourselves with strong emotions, with strong feelings, even strong beliefs. And it actually changes our DNA. And we pass that, we pass those changes on. So that, uh, you know, that's kind of the fast part. But the basic instincts, they're not going to change that quickly. But the thing is, once our environment changes, we need to learn how to live with those instincts. Even though they don't really support that, that same environment anymore, we're going to have to learn to live with them in a way that is compatible with living in this new environment. Because if you're crosswise with your instincts, you're not a happy camper. If you live in a way that is that is at odds with your instincts, you will feel anxious. You will feel unfulfilled. You will feel like you're doing it wrong, like there's something wrong here, and you just will have anxiety and neurosis and that sort of thing. So we have to look at our instincts and say, all right, that's us. We got to accept those, and we got to live with them in a positive way. But we don't have to. We don't have to just do a knee-jerk response to them, but we do have to accommodate them. So that's kind of where we are now, learning to accommodate our instincts, not have just a knee-jerk response, and accommodate them without trying to deny them, because to deny them is to drive yourself nuts. Your body just won't let you get away with that without uh, causing you a lot of anxiety. So did right. that answer your question? Well, there's still a part that I want to uh, okay. uh, keep, keep going. <laughs> well, so the instincts come together with, they come in, in the avatar. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we are not the avatar, though. We are the consciousness that plays the right. avatar. Right. So it would seem to me that if uh, a player that has a high quality of consciousness is less uh, controlled by the instincts of the avatar than, say, uh, a low quality of consciousness. Would you agree with that? Well, somewhat. Let me state it a little differently. The avatar sets the constraints on what the player can do. Okay, The consciousness can only do things that the avatar supports. So if the avatar, say, is mentally retarded, Okay, then the consciousness, even if it's brilliant, can only play a mentally retarded avatar. So that's 
you know, that, that's kind of the, the, uh, the connection between avatar and consciousness is that the avatar sets the constraints on what the consciousness can do. All right. So, so if you have a consciousness that is uh, very evolved and, and very grown up, a low entropy consciousness, now it can play that avatar probably to maximum benefit. You know, it can play that avatar in a way that optimizes whatever that avatar is capable of. And if you had a, a consciousness that was very uh, uh, just beginning in the evolutionary uh, game, then it would not play that avatar to as much as it was capable of. It would probably play it beneath, it, you know, that, that level. So, yes, the, the consciousness can make a difference in how it plays the same avatar. One of them playing it to its full capacity, the other one not because it doesn't know how to do that. It's not grown up enough yet. So that's kind of what, what you know, how these things work. The avatar just sets constraints. The consciousness has to work within those constraints. But those constraints maybe can, you know, be, uh, <clears throat> be widened some as that, uh, as that player, if the player is um, a high quality of consciousness, it may help that avatar grow out of some of those constraints. You know, just during that lifetime, if the consciousness is a low quality of consciousness, it may not help that avatar, you know, grow up quite so much. But the whole point is, it's not the avatar's growth. The avatar is just a virtual thing. The whole thing is challenging the consciousness. That's the choice maker. And it's whether or not the consciousness grows up some from the experience, not so much whether it optimized its avatar or not. It's whether or not it grows up from that experience. So does that, does that get to the, the issue? I think so. Well, because the question arose because I read a story about uh, uh, Ramana Maharshi and at one point he had an awakening experience. And after that, he realized that he's basically consciousness and not uh, an avatar. And at, at that point, he, uh, he actually stopped eating and he stopped taking care of himself. So that made me think, well, maybe, well, he's, he would probably be less driven by his instinct to survive than someone with a lower quality of consciousness. Like if, if you put two people in a life threatening situation, the one with a higher quality of consciousness will be less um, driven to survive and more able to think, uh, to prioritize maybe different things that are more important. Do you, do you understand where I'm coming yeah, from? Yeah, I do. But I would say that um, when, a, when a consciousness, when, a, when a, the, uh, the boy realizes that he is consciousness and uh, decides that he's not going to eat anymore, that's probably a very poor decision. Not one from a really advanced consciousness. Um, if he was an advanced consciousness, he'd think, Wow, okay, I get that. That's good. Now, what are we going to do with that consciousness? Let's see if we can't learn some stuff. Let's see if we can't evolve some quality here. And not eating isn't on your path to evolving more quality. So I would say that that was a, that was a decision based more out of ignorance than anything else to decide that, oh, I'm consciousness now, therefore I'm not going to eat. 
I don't think that was a consciousness that was so grown up that it didn't really care if it ate or not, because a consciousness that's grown up knows that it's playing an avatar. The avatar needs to eat, and we need to get about the business of helping other people, you see, and growing up and sharing our understanding and that sort of thing. So He did uh, realize that later on. It was just a sort of a phase he went through. Yeah, it took him a while to get into gear, but... Yeah. yeah, I suspect that the consciousness maybe got a little nudge or so uh, too to to uh, take a different viewpoint. That that was its initial, it's, that was its initial uh, decision, and it realized that was a bad one. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have another question related to this. Can I ask that now? Sure. Okay. Uh, so if we look at uh, romantic love and intimate relationships through the lens of biological evolution it makes the whole thing seem quite uh, cold and selfish. From that perspective, the only thing people are, in, are, people are interested in is finding a partner that is as evolutionary fit as possible to give their genes the highest chances of survival, stuff like that. I was wondering, does MBT provide a less bleak view on romantic love and intimate relationships? Like, are there other factors at play uh, that bring people together other than the fundamentally selfish drive for our avatar's genes to survive. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, similar to what we, what I talked about um, in your first question, and that is just because we have instincts, that doesn't mean that your, that your consciousness, the player, is limited by those instincts. Okay, the instincts are there, and the player has to work with them, but he's not limited by them. So a a uh, well-developed consciousness player can and will be thinking of things in much bigger terms, a much bigger picture as far as their romantic relationships. It's not just about pushing their genes forward. It's not just about that sort of thing. It's about caring. And it really is about love. Now, average on the average, people aren't that high a quality in their consciousness, and they tend to get into romantic situations based on their needs. They don't fall in love so much as they fall in need. They both are, are driven with needs, needs for security, needs for you know sharing, needs for physical connection. And that is the main driver, but that doesn't have to be the main driver. Uh, there, you can actually fall in love where it really is about that other person and trying to give them uh, what they need and be there for them and, and whatever. It doesn't have to be just about uh, you know, sexuality and procreation and, and uh, doing as your instincts bid you to do. Again, you don't want to get crossways with your instincts. That is not a healthy thing to do, but you don't have to be a servant to your instincts either. You can have much higher, uh, uh, much bigger picture goals and viewpoints and attitudes and still get along with your instincts just fine. So yes, uh, all romantic things are not necessarily just on the level of you know, working through the instinctual impulses. Uh, indeed, one can fall in love. One can actually go into those relationships with uh, caring about other and one finds that in those significant other relationships, that's where they grow up the most. That's where the challenges are. So to get into a very deep and meaningful relationship with another person is a very growing thing 
to do. It helps you grow. If you've got ego, that'll, that'll find that ego button and push it. If you've, you know, if you've got uh, any other kinds of issues, beliefs, they will be challenged. So the a very deep relationship with another person is a good thing, a good growing thing. Now you can just get in it and it's all about you and you can spend your life struggling. You know, each person trying to get everything they want and not really caring too much about what the other person wants. And many relationships are like that. And they usually are not very good relationships. Those relationships where they really do care about each other and it's not about themselves, then those are relationships that are hugely profitable um, in learning and growth for both people. So I wouldn't feel negative about, you know, man, woman, instinct, you know, have sex, make babies, let the race go forward kind of instinctual stuff. That's there, yes. That's part of our heritage, but that's not a limitation. You can, uh, you can go as far above and beyond that as you're capable of doing and still find a lot of value and, 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 uh, good learning within that relationship.